I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day he rose again. He ascended into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of the Father. And he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit. The Holy Catholic Church. The communion of saints. The forgiveness of sins. The resurrection of the body. And the life everlasting. Amen. That's the Creed, the Apostles' Creed. And uh, we're in uh, this series at the moment called I Believe, uh, based on the Latin word for creed, which is credo, which literally means I believe. As Christians, as we looked at last week, we are a believing people. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. And we, we opened that up last week, and this week we're now into the meat, as it were, of what we believe. I believe in God. Not vaguely that kind of some sort of God is out there or God is vaguely out there somewhere. Not a God of our imagining. Not a God of our wishful thinking. Not the God of our desire or what we'd like God to be like. But the real, actual God. Now the Bible uses all sorts of images and analogies and metaphors to describe God. Truthfully, words don't begin to do him justice. Our small brains, I don't mean that disrespectfully, just in comparison to God, our brains are somewhat small. They don't, can't fully begin to comprehend and understand just how glorious and magnificent he is. And so the Bible uses images and metaphors to help us that think God is a bit like that and a bit like that and a bit like that. And all that we know of, of God is revealed in the Bible and it's summed up here in the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. And we're using, as I said last week, the Creed uh, to preach the Bible. And so if you've got a Bible, we're going to start ourselves in Psalm 149 today because at the heart of believing is not just knowing about God, knowing stuff about him, but knowing God in a biblical sense, being in a relationship with him. And like any relationship, it is a two-way thing. And so Psalm 149, it kind of uses lots of military uh, metaphors of conquest. conquest and, and really, Psalm 149 completes Psalm 148. And in Psalm 148, the whole earth, everything that is created, is created and called for the purpose of doing one thing, which is praising God. And then we get... Psalm 149, praise the Lord, sing to the Lord a new song, his praise in the assembly of the godly. Let Israel be glad in his maker. Let the children of Zion rejoice in their king. Let them praise his name with dancing, making melody to him with tambourine and lyre. For the Lord takes pleasure in his people. He adorns the humble with salvation. Let the godly exult in glory. 
Let them sing for joy on their beds. Let the high praises of God be in their throats and two-edged swords in their hands to execute vengeance on the nations and punishments on the peoples, to bind their kings with chains and their nobles with fetters of iron, to execute on them the judgment written. This is honor for all his godly ones. Praise the Lord. We here that are the, the people of God. We are commanded here in this psalm and lots of other places in scripture to praise God and to praise him with passion and with zeal. There's a both in this psalm we see a restfulness of praise, which is the whole thing of being praising him on the bed, but also a warfare of praise, the whole imagery of sword. There's praising God is supposed to be something that encompasses all of who we are, all of our range of emotions, all of our circumstances, both restful praise and, and triumphant yeah, praise. We're commanded to sing to God. We're commanded as children to, of God to rejoice in our king, to praise him with our voices, to use our bodies to praise him, literally dancing and, and being joyful and being glad in God. That's the command. Be glad in God today. How can you command an emotion? It's a little bit like kind of trying to command a toddler to stop being, feeling hungry. Stop it. Stop feeling hungry. <laughs> moment. I'm just, moment, moment. You, you, it, you don't, you can't, it feels like you can't command an emotion, but if you think about what we looked at last week, at the heart of Christianity is not, I feel, but I believe. It's not, I feel this, but no, I believe this. Psalm 149 tells us that we can believe in God because, well, Psalm 148 says he's eternally worthy of praise, that all of creation praises him. And so if, if God never did anything else ever again, he would still be eternally worthy of praise. Psalm 149 tells us that for those who are the people of God, for those who are now in Christ, those who are Christians, verse four tells us God takes pleasure in his people, and he grants us the gift of salvation. So we have double reason to pray him, and then even in the last three verses, the bit you think, oh, that turns a little bit serious, that gives us another reason to praise him, because there is a coming judgment against all those who don't honor God, all those who reject him, all those who reject his mercy, all who practice injustice and oppression, God will deal with it. This is really very, very good news if you think about it. God is both for us, and everything that is wrong one day will be made right. That's why we can praise him. But above all, we can praise him because we can know him. You can know God. I can know God and therefore I will be glad. I will rejoice. I will be joy joyful. I, because I can know God, I can pray like Paul in, in 2 Corinthians 6 verse 10 where he says, As sorrowful yet always rejoicing. As poor, yet making many rich, as having nothing. You can have absolutely nothing. And still, because you know God can possess everything. Some of us are going through real difficult moments. Well, just a few verses later, Paul says, In all our affliction, I am overflowing with joy. Not because of circumstances, but because I know God. Your circumstances can be completely down the toilet and you can be overflowing with rejoicing because it's got nothing to do with that and everything to do with knowing God. And of course, to be able to say this is one thing. To be able to live it is entirely another thing. 
And in order to be able to both say it and live it out, you've got to know God. And the purpose of the creed is to define and summarize Christian teaching and, and form the nature of our relationship with him. We believe in God, a knowable God, a God of relationship, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, this triune God, the Trinity. It literally means three in one. And the doctrine of the Trinity, the Christian understanding of who God is, it is one of the differentiating doc, uh, doctrines of the Christian faith. It what stands it apart in so many different ways. We have Father, Son, and Spirit, God ex- eternally existing in three persons. Each person is both fully God, and yet there is one God. Now the Trinity is a bit confusing, right? <laughs> if you are confused by it, don't worry. If you're not confused by it, you haven't understood it. The Trinity is a complicated thing to get your head around. No one fully can. If we could, we would be God. But God's not a problem to be solved. He's a God to be worshipped. And lots of people, when it comes to the Trinity, try and explain the Trinity using all sorts of illustrations, three-leaved clovers and Mars bars. I've heard someone try and describe the, Christ, uh, the, the Trinity with before and various states of H2O in its different forms and kind of human roles. Well, I'm this and this and this. And, and to be honest, my advice with you, if you're ever trying to explain the Trinity by using any of those, don't. You're immediately getting yourself into all sorts of heresy without meaning it. Don't use any of those illustrations. They do not work in any way, shape, or form. They end up in all sorts of theological error. The best illustration is this one. It's actually not an illustration, it's just an explanation. I don't know if you can see it there. God is Father, God is Son, God is Holy Spirit. Father is not Son, is not Holy Spirit. Son is not Father, is not Holy Spirit, and Holy Spirit is not, you get the idea. God is, and is not those things. (laughs) The Apostles' Creed takes us through who the God's, we believe in is and what he's like. Jesus will come next week and we'll have the Holy Spirit at some point later too. But here's the thing. If we want to know more fully, know God, if we want to enjoy God, if we want to be able to be those who are glad in our maker, then we need to be clear on who he is and what he's like and more importantly, what the significance and implication of that revelation of his character has for us. Because it's not just about knowing some stuff in your head. It's about knowing in your heart. And I want to look at these first three descriptions here, and we're going to do it in reverse. Creator, Almighty Father. God is creator. It's already even been referenced in this meeting. Isaiah 40, verse 28. The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the, heaven, of the ends of the earth. God created the heavens and the earth. Everything we see. This is kind of one of the most important foundational doctrines revealed in the Bible, and yet we often treat it as just some teaching for kids. If you've been on the kids' team for more than two years, you've probably already taught the creation story at least four or five times. <laughs> and we kind of, kind of think, well, it's just, it's just for children. Like, God created the world, and yay. No, no, no. It's not just for kids. This is deeply foundational. 
Now, we so often, because we grow old and we think we need to start acting like adults now, we get sidetracked by all sorts of secondary questions. They're not unimportant, science and was it six, 20 literal days and all that kind of stuff. They're not, they're not unimportant questions, but they miss the biggest implication of what it means for God to be as creator. See, because yes, God did make everything. He holds the world in his hands. He is, uh, and this makes him immeasurably vast beyond anything our brains can imagine. And yet profoundly for you and for I to say that God is creator is to say that he is the one and he alone is the one in whom you find your identity and your purpose. You see, your God not only created the world, but he also created you. And you exist because God chose to make you. And when he made you, he made you for himself. Meditate on this, Psalm 149, back to verse two. Be glad in your maker. Be glad in your maker. Verse four, he takes pleasure in his people. You were then, just allow this to sink in for a moment. God's not just kind of creator out there. Although he is, you were made for your maker's pleasure. You were created for the pleasure of the one who created everything. The one who made the most beautiful, incredible things on this planet created you for his purpose and his pleasure. And so you are here on this earth for the sake of someone else. And that someone else is God himself. That doesn't diminish your purpose or your value in any way. It actually maximizes it. See, one of the lies of our culture is that we're in control of our own destiny. That we're the masters of our fate. That we're the captains of our soul. I'm in charge of me and no one else. No, you're not. You're not the captain of anything. You're not the master of anything. You can't control anything. You did not create yourself. You cannot recreate yourself. And so your value is not found. You know, our world says our value, our, our identity, our uniqueness is found in the fact that we, we are individually unique. My, my value is found in the fact that I am me and no one else is like me. Individual uniqueness. No, no, no. That's not what your value is found in at all. Your value is found in the God who created you in his own image. Yes, you are special. Actually, you're not special. You're sacred. You are sacred but this is because you in all, and me in all sorts of stunning and beautiful ways, you look like the God who made you. That's where your uniqueness comes from. That's where your, your specialness comes from. You were made by God for God. And the truth is of the gospel, of, uh, the Bible describes this. We, we have stuffed this up. We didn't live as God intended. We sinned, we rebelled, we acted like we're the captain of our own souls. We tried to bring everything under our control. We tried to secure our own future and our own identity. And we, in doing that, we marred the image of God and we mucked it all up. But the God who creates also recreates. He caused you to be born again. He's given you a new heart. He has made you into something new and you are now a new creation. And so to know God as creator is to recognize that you are his creature. Wow. 
But now in Christ, as a Christian, you are doubly his. He made you in his image, and then he remade you for his glory. And so now you are the workmanship of Christ Jesus. That gives you reason to be glad. That gives you reason to sing, because the Lord, the creator of all, takes pleasure in you. He's also almighty. He's the creator, but he's also almighty. Truthfully, many people believe in a God who is inspiring, but not particularly powerful, right? Like, he might manage a miracle or two from time to time, but mostly, God these days spends most of his time just kind of sitting on the sidelines, vaguely encouraging us to do better and work harder. That's how so many people have this kind of image of God. He occasionally turns up to remind us to make better choices with our lives. We can kind of have an attitude that God sort of has a job description and his job description runs something like this, to solve our problems and make us feel good. So we end up by kind of treating God like a sort of divine butler and a cosmic therapist. It's sort of better version of ourselves. That's how we view God. It's, It's why we get so disillusioned when bad things happen. And we say things like, God, why? Why is this happening? You shouldn't be doing this. Why? Because we wouldn't be doing this. We don't think this should be happening. So we say, God, why are you doing it? Because we kind of think that God is a better version of us. I mean, we know he's better than us, but we kind of think he thinks like we think. And and we kind of think his main job is to make us feel better about ourselves and do the things we ask for him. But the true God is not some kind of therapist or divine butler in the sky. He's the gracious and holy king whose reign erupted into human history in the person of Jesus Christ. This God does whatever he pleases in the heavens and on the earth. Whatever he plans, he brings to pass. Whatever he declares, he does. Through his word, he created all things. By his word, he holds everything together. The God that we meet in the Bible is not passive. He doesn't stand on the sidelines encouraging us to do better. He's a measureless mystery whose plans never fail, whose beauty enthrones the hearts of those who love him. He swirls solar systems into existence out of empty space. He sets princes on thrones and flings kings down into the dust. He has unleashed his kingdom on earth through a virgin's womb and has crushed the power of the devil through the cross and the empty tomb. Psalm 115 verse 3 says, our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. He does whatever he wants. He is powerful and he is almighty. And if this God is for you, we heard this earlier, who can be against you? Wow. See, every enemy that we face, every enemy that we face is overcome. Even the enemy of death, he has defeated. I mean, just how powerful do you have to be to say to death, yeah, 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 no, death, listen, you can't do that anymore? Like, how powerful do you have to be by with your word just to go, do that and it happens, make that and it happens, stop that and it stops. Like, I can't even make my five-year-old do any of those things with the threat of violence, (laughs) let alone a word. I don't actually threaten my five-year-old. I just like point that out. Please. With a word, death, you can't do that no more. Verse 7 of Psalm 149, with a word, he executes vengeance over his enemies. He's almighty. We don't mess around with him. And yet this powerful God, this is where we're going to land, is also father. He's a father. 
Psalm 149 verse 4, the Lord takes pleasure in his people. He takes pleasure in his people. Do you know? Do you know how great his pleasure and his affections are towards you right now? Do you know how great his pleasure and his affections are towards you right now? For so many of us, it's easier to believe that for some reason, God, yeah, he saved us, but he kind of, frankly, barely tolerates us at best. Like, yeah, thank you, God, you saved me. I don't really get why. And okay, I promise I won't be too much of a nuisance for the rest of my time, but thank you, you've saved me. And that's kind of it. Scripture tells us something very, very different. His people are his children. 1 John 3, 1, see what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. Children of God. Staggering, unfathomable mystery, and yet completely and utterly true, and foundational, and life-changing in every way. God is our Father, and we are his children. And this truth lies at the heart of the Christian life and it lies right at the heart of the ability to rejoice and know joy regardless of circumstances. You see, when we think of God, whenever we think of God, our first thought should be Father. And so therefore, when we think of ourselves, we need to think beloved child before we think of anything else. That's the heart of our identity. We are chosen, loved, cherished, adored. And he takes pleasure in us. He takes pleasure in us. Zephaniah 3.17 says he rejoices over you with singing. It's the image of a parent just singing gently, quietening over their child with a lullaby. You know when they're little and you just sing over them and you sing that hushed tones. That's the image of God right now singing gently quieting over us with his love. He rejoices over you. Doesn't, like, doesn't your heart long for that? To know that intimacy again? To know, like, none of us can remember being a baby. I so like, wish that I could because it was just that moment of like, parents just singing over me and delighting in me. I did absolutely nothing except cry, scream, and poop. Nothing at all, and yet they still just delighted over me. Like, and we grow up and we forget all of that. That's the image. Doesn't your heart long for that? To know that you are so secure because you are so loved with a pure, steadfast, extravagant, abundant love that's not dependent on you in any way. We so long for it and yet we simultaneously struggle to believe it. Some of us have had bad experiences. Our experiences communicate to us. They tell us that such a perfect love doesn't exist. Or it kind of exists, but it's dependent on conditions. You've got to perform in a certain way. You've got to keep a certain standard. You've got to do certain things. You've got to say the right things. And then you receive love. Or you've got to act in a certain way. Some of us are prone to question why. Why do you love me? Like, how? How can you love me? Like, we question if he really loves us at all. We kind of get into that moment going, I know all the stuff that I've done. How, after everything I've done, how can I possibly be remotely lovable? How? Why? Really? Why would you? 
Some of us have the constant whisper of the devil in our ear. You're not really a son. You're not really a daughter. You're still a slave. You're, you're not really adopted. You're still an orphan. Sure, you can hang around with the other adopted kids, but just know this, you're not really one of them. You can go to some of their parties, but you're never going to get the party for yourself. You might know some of them, and you might think you're a bit like them, but you're not really, you're not really loved. You're an illegitimate child. Lie, 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 and lie again. How do we, how do we overcome those lies? Well, the only antidote to the poison of these lies is the healing truth of Scripture. If you've had a bad experience of fatherhood and father, you need to know this. God's not male. He's not male. He's not a man. But he is a father. A perfect father whose love is perfect and pure and steadfast. He's a father who chooses you and loves you. Those of us who are prone to question why, how can he love me? We're a bit like the younger brother. So often in the, the story of the, the prodigal son, we kind of think, oh, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son anymore. We look at ourselves and we see our mess and we think there's no way he can really love me. That's the whole point of the story of the prodigal son. You're not supposed to look at yourself. You're supposed to look at the father. His love is based on his character, his perfect character, not our slightly dodgy one. That's the truth. That's the reality. His love is greater. Look at Ephesians 1 with me for a moment. Verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. When did he decide to love you? Before the foundation of the world. Before you did a thing, before you performed in any way, before you made a single mistake or did a single decent thing, when did he decide to love you? Before the creation of the world. How has he accomplished this adoption? Through the death of his son. It was all his initiative, every single bit. We didn't contribute any more to our new birth than we did to our original biological birth. At no point. Did you contribute anything to your biological birth? You weren't involved. You just turned up. You weren't involved in your new birth either. Jesus made a way. The Father chose you before the foundation of the earth. Why did he do it? Because of his abundant love. Because he wanted to. That's what the purpose of his will is. Because he wanted to. Why? Because it brings him joy. The other word for purpose here in Ephesians 1 is pleasure. He chose you because he wanted to, because it brings him joy. He rejoices over you. You bring him pleasure. If you are in Christ here today, if you're a Christian, you will always bring pleasure to the Father. I've used this illustration before, and I'm using it again because I just can't think of a better one. 
The 2012 Olympics, some of you were watching it. It happened just down the road. And in the swimming bit, there was a South African swimmer, a guy called uh, Chad Laclos, who won gold. And Claire Balding, I still can never get this image out of my head, interviewed, not him, interviewed his dad, who's this big South African dude. And he said, how does it feel? And oh my gosh, that man just shouted, my boy, my boy, look at my boy. Look how beautiful he is. And Claire Balding's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. He's going, look at my boy. And he's crying and he's rejoicing. She's like, you must be proud he's won gold. He goes, yeah, but look at him. Look how beautiful he is. I don't care if he wins or loses. Look how amazing he is. Look at my boy. Look how beautiful he is. In Christ, God the Father looks on us and says, this is my beloved child in whom I am well pleased. He looks on you and says, look at my boy. Look at my girl. Well, I don't care if they come first, last, or don't even get in the pool, or just tripped over and fell in. They're amazing. <laughs> I love it. Wow, beautiful, beautiful, beautiful. He adopts us into his family. We're his sons and his daughters. We're his children. He is our father. And because of Jesus, he is well pleased. John Owen, Puritan writer, says this. The greatest sorrow and burden you can lay on the father, the greatest unkindness you can do to him, is not believe that he loves you. The greatest unkindness that you can do to God is to not believe that he loves you, like the Bible tells us he does. He wanted me, he delights in me, he loves me. Thomas Brooks, also a Puritan, they knew how to write these guys, says, God beholds his people in the face of his son and sees nothing amiss in them. He sees the sinner without spot or wrinkle. Christ makes us comely through his beauty. The Father honors us, delights in us, is well pleased with us, extends his love and favor to us, esteems us, and gives us free access to himself in Christ. We are covered and hid under the precious robe of Christ's righteousness. Isn't that stunning? Isn't that incredible? Isn't that amazing? And the implications of God, the almighty creator, also being our father, they're just vast. Like when my kids need something, they don't hesitate in coming to me. They just have an expectation that I can deliver everything and anything. We have a father who's almighty and all-powerful. So when we're afraid, he's our strength. When we're sad, he's our comfort. When we're lonely, he's ever-present. When we're lost and confused, he's our way. When we're anxious, he bears our burdens. And we only know these things to be true as we spend time with him. And the more we spend time with him, the more we know these things to be true. Because it's one thing to know in your head that I don't need to be anxious about anything. It's another thing to know in your heart that I don't need to because the Father Almighty is with me always and has got me covered. It's one thing to know in your head that you're forgiven and free. It's another thing to live daily under the righteousness of Christ knowing that my Father is well pleased in me. It's one thing to know in your head 
that your identity is not found and based on your performance is another thing to live it entirely in front of other people knowing the security and the love of a heavenly father. And there's a couple of other implications as well of God being our father. Is that we also want to be like him. Children imitate their dad, right? Catch them pretending to shave and all sorts of other things. They copy their dad. So do do we. See, when God says, be holy for I am holy, he's not shouting at us and having a go. He's inviting us to be like him. And the Bible tells us and shows us what God's like. And then Jesus comes and we see exactly what God's like. It's why he says, whoever's seen me has seen the Father. And we're called to imitate Jesus, to be like him. We're called to be conformed to his image. We're told that one day we will be like him. That's the journey we're on. That's the process of sanctification. That is, we started off here. One day we will literally be like him and we're on this journey. And he who began the work will bring it to completion. So how do we play our part where we do the things that Jesus did? Starting with praying like Jesus did. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. See, we become more like God as we do the things that Jesus, and it starts with knowing him as father and then doing the things that Jesus did, being in community, loving one another, praying, serving one another. But then finally, if you guys come back, the greatest blessings. To be honest with you, this is something I'm still learning. The greatest blessing of having him as father, because we're beloved children, is that we can know rest in our father's arms. We can know deep rest, which isn't about just whether you've got a day off tomorrow or you don't have to do anything this afternoon. We can know rest. We don't need to be frantic. Some of us are frantic. We don't need to be worried. Some of us are freaking out about all sorts of things. We don't need to be fretful. Some of us fret the whole time. We don't need to be stressed out. Some of us are seriously stressed out right now. We don't need to be. We don't need to be angry. Some of us, those things work out in anger. Because we have a perfect father who quiets over us with his love. Even in the midst of trial and difficulty and hardship and circumstance in stressful moments, in anxious moments, in moments where we've got every reason to worry and get stressed out, we've got every legitimate excuse to say, well, I, I know I shouldn't, but if you look at all the, I've got under lots of pressure right now. Even in those moments, we have a father who quiets over us Hey, it's okay. Pats us on the back. It's okay, I've got you. It's okay, I'm with you. Look to me. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Look to heaven. So we can stop running to other things. We can run to our Father. We can bask in the love of our Father. We can delight in it. We can rejoice in it. We can sing in it. We need to remind ourselves of it again and again and again. And most of all, we need to rest in it. He loves us. Oh, how he loves us. He has made a way for us. He invites us in. How great the Father's love. 
that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are.